Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philacrosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to the Philacrosophy podcast. Really excited to have Inside Lacrosse CEO Terry Foy on the show. Terry, love having you on. Love talking lacrosse with you. I always uh, coin you as the smartest guy on lacrosse and fired up to hear uh, hear your thoughts today. Thanks for having me, Jamie. You're too kind. Um, but I love to meander all around the sport with you as well. So happy to happy to do it. All right. So this fall, you've had an opportunity to visit with a ton of Division One programs, seven, I guess, to be exact. And yep. uh, Matt Kinnear's visited a bunch. You got a few more. Let's talk Division One college lacrosse, fall ball, and uh, maybe start getting an idea of what we can expect for spring. Yeah. So I think that it's fair to say that the the overarching thing that Matt and I were interested in coming away from our visits was particularly looking toward the Ivy league programs that hadn't played in the spring or, or, you know, in the case of say Penn Dartmouth and Brown had played one game and, and had practiced um, you know, the other programs had varying practice situations as well. And just seeing how they looked relative to, you know, and, and, and I guess I can't even really finish that sentence without saying that, we couldn't really tell a difference. And, and what I'm getting at is that we've been doing this for more than 10 years in terms of visiting fall practices. And, it, you know, it, it, it was great to do it in the last month because we weren't able to do it in the fall of 2020 for obvious reasons. Yep. And the thing about fall that is so special and beneficial is there's so much less urgency than there is in the spring for obvious reasons. You don't have to worry about a game that's five days away, three days away, a day away, whatever the case may be. And that luxury of time allows for a much different approach to how you structure things. It 
typically means that both the coaches and players are more at ease. So they're more willing to, and, and they're really more focused on themselves than they are on their opponent. And so as a result, the things that they're doing, I think to them, they feel less proprietary. And so we just get a much clearer glimpse into what's going on within the organization. Obviously with the Ivy league programs, depending on, you know, Matt visited Penn's practice. They were together last spring. I visited Yale. They were not. I'm going to see Harvard later this week. The big distinction there is, are you dealing with half of your team that essentially has never practiced together? Or are you dealing with only a quarter of your team that is new? And I also visited Georgetown and Johns Hopkins practices. And so that was, you know, a a similar situation in the sense that there were only 25% of the guys on the team that hadn't gone through a college practice, but there were 50% of the team that didn't go through fall because neither Hopkins nor Georgetown had a fall in 2020 at all. Yep. And so I guess what I'm getting at is that, you know, despite the fact that we've been doing this for 10 years and have a pretty good barometer or benchmark for what we should see when we visit a fall practice, it still isn't, you can't know what a Yale or Penn practice would look like had they not missed the 2021 season. And so you're comparing your expectation against this counter reality that is a figment to your imagination. And I guess the only thing I can say is, Yale didn't seem any rustier than Georgetown or Hopkins. And so as a result, I'm not that convinced that missing the season is going to have this huge, huge negative effect on their teams this spring. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it will either. I mean, I think that there's some lost experience, but you're getting it back with older guys anyways. And not to mention the fact that, you know, and and I think this is going to be one of the things that we spend some time talking about, but just the value of savoring it and being unbridledly enthusiastic because you know what the stakes are, you know what it means not to have it. And, you know, it was really Brian Tevlin who I felt the Yale captain who I felt put it best. And, you know, I was talking with him, Chris fake, Will Cabrera and Jack star after the practice that I visited. And I was just asking him, what was it like? You know, I asked them, did you watch lacrosse in the spring? Uh, You know, they all said that they didn't expect to, but then yeah, they watched pretty much every game that was on TV. Um, and, and, you know, Brian's comment was when you get to be a senior, it's not that you want it to be over, but it's that you have three years of wear and tear in your body. It is such a grind. The light at the end of the tunnel is visible. You're ready for it to be over. And he was like, after having it taken away from me for a year, I want to play lacrosse for the rest of my life. And I think that that's, a really interesting perspective relative to the value of just, again, this enthusiasm that these teams that, you know, lost something by virtue of not having the 2021 season are going to carry into the 22 spring. Right. And really it was most of two years. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so tell us what you've seen in, 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 you know, maybe um, program by program, what impressed you? Yeah. So uh, you mentioned I've, I've seen seven teams live and that's true, but four of them were at uh, Loyola play day on, I believe October 9th. So obviously seeing them compete in those four teams were Loyola, Delaware, Villanova, and St. Joe's seeing them compete against each other in kind of a live fire situation, as opposed to actually kind of getting um, your hands dirty a little bit in the nitty gritty of practice is different. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I would say that the distinction there, you know, I'll, I'll start with the, the three, uh, who, whose practices I visited because 
Um, I think I can speak in greater detail on them and we can get through those and then move on to, uh, you know, the four other teams. So with Yale, I think, um, you know, so 30 guys have never practiced before 20 guys are back. Uh, they have a new facility that's on the, uh, one end line, I guess it would be the West end line, the side field house that didn't exist the last time there was a game that was played there. So the theme was that there was a lot that's new. Uh, but one of the other things that I, I really came away from with a sense of was, you know, one of the things that was new a couple of years ago were Tom Compatello and Ed Williams as the assistants. And I was struck by how Andy Shea has spoken, you know, and, and I've had the good fortune of, of getting to develop a, a good longstanding relationship with them. And one of the things that I like the most about both our dialogue and the content that I've created around him and his program is that he's been more intentional about his own improvement as a coach than many of his peers. And one of the things that charts that improvement was, you know, at the outset of his tenure at Yale, he felt like he was somebody who just coached the starters. He was too involved with the game plan at both ends of the field and didn't delegate enough to his assistants. And as he grew in his role, grew more comfortable in his own skin, his ability to be the quote unquote CEO of the program and, allow his coordinators to handle each other in the field has grown and, and flourished. After the 2018 national championship, Andrew Baxter and Andrew Stimmel both got head coaching jobs and Comp and Ed Williams, who had both in successive seasons been volunteers with the program, were promoted to full-time assistants. And I wasn't around the team during the 2019 or 20 season to the extent that I didn't go to one of their practices, but I can imagine a scenario in which those guys were a little bit getting their sea legs Seeing them this past, you know, this a couple of weeks ago really solidified these guys are comfortable in their approach. They're comfortable in, in their role and uh, what they're trying to get done. And I think from a standpoint of, of, you know, how that trickles down to the players, you know, I'll reiterate that I felt like Tevlin and Jack Oaken and uh, some of the other kind of bigger personalities are from that senior midfield group. I think Matt Gaudette has the potential to be nearly as productive as Ben Reeves, if not more so. And I think that even with that, you know, he, he doesn't have that same type of vocal presence that those middies do. And, and, and I would say Chris fake falls kind of right in line with those guys as well. You know, they really do have a sneaky amount of returning experience. Uh, a lot of guys that, you know, played those four games in 2020 before the season was shut down. Yep. And they don't have TD Erland, but they do have a lot of highly regarded talent at the face opposition coming out of high school. And it's just a function of proving it and showing it at this level. And so I guess what I'm getting at is I think that they are, you know, probably a preseason seven, eight but they have a realistic chance to, by the end of the year, return to their final four national championship contending form. Did you notice when you were at Yale, uh, just how the culture is driven by players? By the players? I, yeah. I was there two years ago in September. Hadn't been to a Yale practice in a long time. I don't think I've been to a Yale practice since I was the assistant coach at Yale for eight years <laughs> in the nineties. But, um, but man, I was so blown away by the way that Andy would, you know, blow the whistle and say what we're doing next. 
but then it was the players that were that were scrambling each other in themselves and the younger players. And it didn't really matter whether it was during course of a drill or going from one drill to the next or whatever, man, they were so dialed in the leadership and the communication uh, was so obvious. It was, it was like, you could feel it. A hundred percent. A couple examples. So Luke Eschbach is another short stick D midi alongside Jack Oaken. And I'm pretty sure it was him who said to one of his teammates, if I see you pick up a one-handed ground ball, I'm going to rip your arm off. And like, not to say that that level of accountability doesn't happen elsewhere, but that's players coaching players. T. Erlin, who I mentioned, was in attendance because it was leading into alumni weekend. And one of the face-off guys, so they do something kind of interesting that I haven't seen elsewhere, which was they have a iPad on like a two-foot tripod and they basically the face-off guys are just taking reps the whole time and they watch it slow-mo. And so the guy who was handling the iPad like had a question about a certain mechanic, you know, like one of those finer nuanced details of facing off that us lay folk could never understand, I guess. And like called TD over just to ask him about it, you know, and it was just another example of a player coaching another player. And yeah, I would, I would say that that and the physicality uh, were the two things. Cause I've now been to two uh, fall practices, one in 2017 and then one this past year, uh, this past month rather. And, and those would be the, the, the way in which the players hold each other accountable and the amount of physicality that is on display. It was apparently ratcheted back after they had really, really kicked each other's asses the prior practice. Um, and the coaches said, like, you got to dial it down. You got to dial it down a little bit. We're going to get somebody hurt. Um, so it wasn't as bad as, as that fall 2017 session, um, but it was still noticeable, uh, you know, particularly, Jamie, you'll love this. So one of the things that I was really intri- in, intrigued by was, and I should have asked about it because I, I haven't explicitly. So they basically, pra- so they practiced for two, roughly two hours. It's like nine to 11, more or less PM. And, uh, and they did like basically drill work, like 10 minutes of drill work. And then the offensive players played like 15 minutes of three by with like this incredibly fast substitution with softballs. So it was like 25 minutes in and then they warmed up. So they did all of that with just like kind of their latent stretching. Um, I thought, I, I, I found that really interesting. Like, you know, obviously they were competing in this three by three game. Um, and, but, but they weren't really, you know, they hadn't done anything full field at that point. They hadn't done any like progressive buildup, um, you know, two, two on three, three on four, that type of situation. Um, so it was just interesting. I was like, huh, you know, most teams warm up to start practice. They warmed up 20% of the way in. Yeah, that is interesting. And um, yeah, Andy has, um, he's got a lot of great drills. He's got an unbelievable drill library and he's got a lot of great ideas back to your point of uh, always trying to sharpen his own saw. He's always like, dude, I got something really cool, but you can't tell anybody. <laughs> uh, well, that's cool in Yale. Um, I actually, by the way, saw Brown practice. Did you? Okay, let's hear about it. Yeah. Well, uh, they looked they looked big, strong, and athletic. They were playing hard. Those guys play hard. Um, they, they've got some big boys. they got some speed in the midfield. They are so uh, big. They are big. Like just, just from like committed Academy and other, you know, spots on the recruiting trail. I mean, that's definitely been something that I've noticed over the course of the last, however many years. 
Yeah, they 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 were competing. Um, you know, like as far as as far as being impressed with the enthusiasm, with the competitiveness um, of the practice. Um, there was, you know, a real competition segment, and then there was more of a, you know, middies down here, attack and D down here, sort of teaching segment, and then it went into a full field segment of transition, uh, and then and then I think it was a full field scrimmage segment. But it was a great practice. It was an impressive practice, and and uh, Coach Daly does a great job of of allowing his assistant coaches to to do their job, you know, and he, you know, he brings it in and and he commands the field when he's talking to the team, but then he lets his assistants coach. And so uh, it, it, it's pretty cool. And, you know, listen, there's no right way to right way or wrong way. If I were a head coach right now, I think I'd like to be able to do some coaching. I, I, it's part of what I enjoyed to do, but, but, um, but man, you know, to be the CEO and to be able to let your assistants do their job and to be able to just have that presence of, you know, seeing everything is huge. So I was impressed with Brown. I mean, they're athletic. They're going to compete. They're going to, I mean, they, they're, they are a big, strong athletic team that plays very hard. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue to talk about Hopkins because, you know, not only are they, you know, one of the two most um, engaged fan bases with Syracuse, I guess we can say it that way. Uh, you know, they're, they were always going to be really interesting this fall because they had a coaching transition between the 2019 and 20 season uh, that was very high profile. I have said and written in many places that I don't think that there was a viable candidate to replace Dave Petromala that would have been more different or enacted changes that were more different to the program than Pete Milliman. I think that I, I've compared him uh, in many ways to Andy Shea in the way that he is non-traditional, right? Didn't come from a division one playing background, didn't come up through the division one assistant coaching ranks, like started at the non-division one level and is, you know, I, I would say, both guys, and I, and I say this with like the highest complimentary tone possible, are very stubborn and very committed to their own point of view. And uh, and so if it was going to be, and it's not to say that, you know, obviously Dave was an all-time great player and, you know, came up through the, exclusively the Division One coaching ranks and is also very committed to, you know, his own point of view. So it's not to say that those things are what's different, but what is different is what they, how they, like what they value and how they think a, a program should function and should run. And so I think, you know, in Peter Milliman's case, it was always going to require a lot of time and a lot of repetition in order for the players to become familiar with what he thinks is a way to win a lacrosse game. So at the offensive end, you know, this is what you do, you know, you pass and you, you move the ball and you move your feet. And this is what, this is what qualifies as a good shot. And this is what not, this is what doesn't qualify as a good shot. Um, you know, and, and certainly the way in which those principles trickle into the transition game and, and the way that they influence the decisions that they make defensively, not to mention, you know, a, a, a very different style of recruiting uh, in terms of the players that they target. You look at, you know, if you were to compare Cornell's classes from, say, 2016 to 2020 with Johns Hopkins, you would see a significant distinction um, in terms of the types of players that they were bringing in, their profile, where they were from all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, with that being said, they were on such an upward trajectory at the end of their season, you know, with their, the four best games that Johns Hopkins played in the, in 2021 were their last four games that I think the question was, you know, how much of that was a function of their improvement? How much of it was a function of other circumstances? You know, there are some who will say, 
when they beat Rutgers in the Big Ten semifinals, they were playing a Rutgers team that wasn't playing for anything. I don't agree with that. I think they were playing a Rutgers team that could very easily have missed the NCAA tournament by virtue of losing that game. Uh, and so I don't discredit the performances that they put in against Maryland, Penn State, Rutgers, and Maryland again. But at the same time, I also don't think that that four-game stretch means that they're necessarily a top 10 or even a top 15 team. I think that not only are they going to have to continue to improve based on what they've got in their own locker room right now, but they're also going to – it's just going to take time to kind of undergo that cultural evolution. So I visited them on October 1st, which was a Friday. It was the end of their first week of 20-hour practices. Uh, Jamison Kessler, the defensive coordinator, and John Grant Jr., the offensive coordinator, were both on the road recruiting. So Pete was handling the practice by himself with Dan Anino, the volunteer who had come over from Amherst. And they also were playing without, you know, basically four of their top five offensive players. Uh, Joey Epstein had class. Garrett Dagnon, Jacob Angelis, and Jack Keough were all dealing with minor injuries. So it was really Connor Simone, and then a bunch of guys who were kind of peripheral contributors last year, um, you know, because keep in mind, Cole Williams, for example, is, is also gone. Uh, so there were a couple, and, and so is Evan Zinn. Uh, so there are, you know, a couple guys that were back, um, Brendan Grimes, chief among them, uh, that made strong impressions. But by and large, what I took away was less about the personnel and more about the approach to trying to teach the guys on the field the level of compete that is necessary in order to be successful. You talked about how hard Brown plays. And I think that there's a difference between how hard you play and how much you love to compete. But there's also, if those two things are a Venn diagram, there's a strong overlap as well. And I think that that, uh, I think, you know, Pete's approach to trying to develop the passion for competing and beating your teammates, but also relishing the fact that you just had the opportunity to compete manifested in a couple of interesting ways. Um, they played either two or three games to one, which I found really interesting. Basically, you know, it's kind of the teams are predetermined and they change all the time, but they're, you know, predetermined for that day's practice. So you divide into two teams and then, you know, it's 10 on 10 starting with a faceoff. And it continues with like, you know, Pete officiates it and the players sub themselves. It continues until the first team scores. Um, and, you know, what he said was in addition to using it as an opportunity to instill the compete level, he also found it to be a really good way to work through scenarios that you wouldn't necessarily predict or forecast when you're just working through a practice plan. He's like, all these things might potentially happen in a game and we've got to be ready for them. Uh, so I found that to be like a, an interesting approach and, you know, not saying that no other program does a game to one uh, intermittently throughout practice. Uh, but that was, you know, at least the first time I see, I saw it used as prominently. I love that. I did a podcast with Pete and we were talking a lot about competing and we talked a lot about the word game-like, which, which requires that it, there must, to me, game-like has to do with the context of, 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 what a game would be like, but also that it's out of the coach's hands and that the players are the ones that have to actually figure it out because in a game, you cannot control it. It's like a jungle, whereas in practice or a drill, it is controllable and a coach can make the drill work to the degree they want it to. You can get it right. You can fix it. Correct. You can't fix it out there, which is part of the reason why these game-like scenarios that are occurring that are unpredictable 
are so important for the athletes because they actually learn in real time and they learn implicitly through the game how to compete, but also, but, but not just compete level of how hard you're playing, but compete level of actually just realizing what's happening and, and how to uh, have, have a poise in a game-like situation. Totally. And I think, you know, so, I mean, you've said a lot there that I agree with, but I do, but I am interested in like, where does unpredictability fall on your list of what describes a game? I mean, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but I would say it falls very high because, because so often things shake out differently than you thought. Um, so they, they play you just a little bit differently. Um, so there's a matchup that's just different. And, and it's like, it seems like this offense works great until somebody else matches up a little bit differently, or you think you got a face-off advantage until you match up against that guy. And so therefore that's what makes games, you know, why they always say you got to go play the game because it is ultimate. It's the ultimate in unpredictability. Totally. No, I mean, I, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. It's just such an interesting contrast between like, I mean, the point that you made that like coaches control drills and can continue to refine drills to produce the outcomes that they want. But ultimately, you know, the nature of sports is that they are so unpredictable. And so, you know, what you're really trying to do is develop your players to the point where they can handle that unpredictability. And whether it's through repetition in terms of game-like situations, or if it's through modified games and trying to create, you know, volume of game-like situations through a modified game, you know, say you played 20 games to one over the course of a practice and each one of them unfolded differently, you theoretically would develop benefits from each one of those that was different. Um, you know, I think about it in the context of like one of the things that Yale does is they go through all of the really odd personnel situations that they could be confronted with. So, you know, basically they line up for a man down face off if Chris Fake is the one that committed the penalty. And then a different one if Mikey Alexander is the one who committed the penalty or if uh, Joe Newman is the one that committed the penalty. So like they go through those types of scenarios just to make sure that they're ready in the event that that relatively uncommon personnel situation confronts them. And that's just, you know, another, another thing that could happen in a, you know, in a, in a, in a modified game like setting that you have to be ready for. Right. And fall is a great time to do it because it is, you know, you have a lot well, of time. And I'm sure that those guys don't only play short games to one because yeah. there's all kinds of situations and scenarios and looks that you're going to give yourself, particularly as you begin to prepare for what you can expect to see. Um, but, um, but, but the fact of the matter is, is that drill environments that are scripted and, um, and controlled, often produce results that seem great, but it's fool's gold. All right. So let's, um, how about, uh, how about Georgetown? Well, no, it's a good transition as well, because, you know, I know that your freak play concepts have a foothold in that coaching staff and that, you know, rosters, uh, idea. And, you know, they're another team who didn't have a fall, had a really successful season. And now I think they're trying to essentially, I'm trying to think of the right word. Like I almost want to say like codify or industrialize 
what they benefited from last fall and turn it into a, just a, a slightly more formal team setting. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would be remiss not to say that like Yale, uh, first time going to Cooper field since, uh, it had, you know, the, the stands had opened. So cool to see that they've got, you know, permanent locker rooms in the, in the, in the stadium, like kind of underneath the, the, the stands for football and field hockey that are used by lacrosse on game days. And then obviously, you know, pretty close proximity there to, uh, to the, the team's permanent locker rooms, nice situation for, uh, folks in our position, uh, with, you know, permanent press boxes. So I'm looking forward to covering a game at Georgetown, hopefully this season, um, but it, you know, the, the big thing was they didn't want to put too many rules into their drills and they didn't want to talk too much during their drills. Um, and I think that, you know, it's basically if, if their players played a lot of, you know, small group lacrosse last fall and they saw the dividends in terms of IQ and skill development, then, you know, they, they, they want to, they want to simulate that as much as possible. One of the things I went with Dan Kaplan, one of my colleagues, and, you know, he made this comment when we were leaving. He's just like, they didn't do a single minute of six on six when we were there. And he was really surprised and, and almost taken aback by that. But I think it's a reflection of the fact that, you know, this game can be taught many, many different ways. And you can have a lot of different points of view on the best ways to do it or the ways that fit the circumstances that you are in the most. So, uh, you know, I've got a lot more thoughts on their personnel than, than I do on, on Hopkins, just cause you know, folks are going to be more familiar with who the personnel was. And I was more familiar with who the personnel was. Um, but we can get into that. Yeah. Let's get into it. Give me some, uh, give me some feedback. Yeah. So, you know, I, I guess it would start with when we were, when we were talking about as a staff, when we were talking about Georgetown, uh, prior to, to our going down there that day, you know, one of the things we talked about is that when you look at them on paper, the primary question is how are they going to replace Jake Carraway's production? And, you know, you can oversimplify it and say like, all right, well, it's 50 goals. They got to find somewhere, you know, is there a guy in this roster that's going to score 50 more goals than he did last year? Are there, you know, there aren't that many guys on any roster. They're going to score 50 more goals than they did last year. So, you know, TJ Haley had shown himself to be such an important piece and such a good piece uh, for them in terms of, you know, 49 assists as a freshman, um, but he only scored five goals. And, you know, what we were talking about is like, if he develops the ability to turn the corner, what that is going to do in terms of how defenses have to play him, you know, specifically, and you probably know this a lot better than I do, but how many of those assists came with his feet set versus came on the dodge? Um, you know, how many had, how many came when he was, when he had drawn, you know, at least the beginnings of a slide, if not a full slide. And so the point is that if he becomes a threat to score while dodging from X and he's going to draw a slide at much earlier than he did last year when he wasn't that threat to score, then the amount of space that the guy he's throwing the ball to or, or any of the five guys that he could potentially be throwing the ball to is going to be a lot greater. And if that's the case, then you can imagine a scenario in which getting 10 goals from TJ Haley means getting 10 more goals from the other five guys on the offense. <laughs> and if that's the case, then you're not replacing Jake Carraway's 50 goals with 50 goals. You're replacing it with 60 goals. And so that was kind of the first thing that we were looking for. And, you know, candidly, <laughs> it was impossible not to immediately notice, like, like 
TJ Haley looked like a pretty skinny player last year. Yeah. And he does not look like that anymore. He was yeah. listed at like 200 pounds on their roster as a freshman. I was, I would have guessed he was listed at 170. And now he looks like he's like 200, 205 pounds. His shoulders and his arms look really big. And he was dodging with a fair amount of physicality. And, you know, basically we came away from it saying like, yeah, I can imagine, you know, that hypothesis that we had laid out coming to fruition. So that was kind of the first thing. The second thing is when the ball comes out of Dylan Watson's stick, a lefty from the Hill Academy who was injured for the first seven games last year, it looks different. So if there is somebody that's going to score 50 more goals than he did last year, it's probably Dylan Watson. Uh, it looks like Connor Morin was kind of penciled in as uh, the third starter at attack, but I also suspect there's going to be a competition there. Obviously, they have a ton back at the midfield. Uh, Graham Bundy, you know, is I think I think he's pretty close to like the leadership core of the team because I think his personality is pretty playful, kind of like Kevin Warren's. And so I think that there's a vibe set, you know, from him that I think carries through to some of the other guys. Um, Dylan has, you know, I, anybody who has followed me knows my affinity for his game. Uh, you know, both those guys looked like they looked last year. I wouldn't say that they looked, you know, phenomenal, but I also would say that what I was watching wasn't necessarily the best showcase for their skills. Um, Declan McDermott, good player. Colin Monroe, good player. Uh Trippy. Alex Trippy transfer from North Carolina, good player. I mean, they're just so de- uh, uh, Peter Thompson, uh, another MIDI who was, you know, kind of in and out of the second line last year, good player. Like there just are no weaknesses in their top nine offensively. And so what's funny is that, you know, you looked at their first two games last year and they, they give up one goal in both of their first two games. Is that right? I know they did to Villanova. Was that also true for their win over St. John's in their second game? I think it was. And so you're, t- you're looking at a team that gave up two goals in 120 minutes. One game they had Gibson Smith, the other game they didn't. And you're talking about their offense. So to transition to the other end of the field, you know, I just, I can't believe, I thought, I thought, I didn't realize Gibson Smith could come back. I thought he was done with his eligibility. So when he was there, I was like, oh my goodness. And I don't know the extent to which I thought the same thing about Owen McElroy, because um, I wasn't as surprised to see him there. But I think if you had asked me, you know, his own, his own McElroy back, I would have had to look it up. So obviously those two are tremendous building blocks to what has the potential to be a really, really good defense. And then you add the guy I think was the best available player on the transfer market in Will Bowen, who comes from North Carolina, has two years of eligibility left. Three years. Um, actually, I think he's got three years. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think right now his intention or plan is to only use two. Uh, we'll see how that unfolds. But you know, he is a physical monster, um, and that is immediately apparent. But I was actually surprised that he wasn't more vocal. Um, but I attribute that to – because I, I think the same was also true for Connor and, and Alex as well. I think for all three transfers, it's just a function of getting used to the, the environment and, you know, kind of feeling more comfortable. And, uh, you know, and then, and then continue on, continuing on with the defense, uh, you know, and Alex Mazzone – and uh, Will Spinovich, they've got, you know, more experience. Lacalzi, Joe Lacalzi is the only one that they have to replace. Uh, I was impressed by Seamus Foley, and uh, Zach Geddes wasn't there. I believe he was out with an injury, um, you know. But, again, short sticks, not necessarily the best showcase for them. I know that they're really excited about the sophomore Leary uh, in terms of his athleticism. 
Uh, don't expect much from the freshman class uh, unless there's something that happens to McElroy and Michael Scharfenberger has to play. Uh, if somebody's going to get on the field, it's probably going to be Kate Goldberg. Um, and then, I, you know, in the same way that I wasn't really able to evaluate anything about the faceoff play at Yale um, or really at Hopkins for that matter, uh, with the exception of, of those kind of game-like situations that Hopkins did, I uh, yeah. wasn't really able to evaluate anything about um, – about uh georgetown's face off guys either so but came away really impressed i think they're you know clearly a top five team probably in that like four or five range um heading into the season they've amped up their schedule tremendously so you know that could be a preseason ranking that you know ends up falling on its face early but then re-emerges as being right as the season goes along um but they're good man they're good they had a unique vibe um how would you describe and- that vibe I'm sorry. How would you characterize the unique vibe? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think a lot of it is just a reflection of what I was talking about. Like they were trying to like, just n- not have rules. They were trying to just let the players play. It's awesome. All right, let's and not only that, but also like, you know, just sorry, like Kevin Warren is someone who I think has grown so tremendously in his own role. And he and I have spoken about this you know, in the first handful of years after he got this job, I think he was playing Georgetown head coach as he thought Georgetown head coach should be played like in a play or in a movie. And I think since say 2015 or so he's been, I am Kevin Warren, the head coach at Georgetown. And I don't know if that took a second contract. I don't know if it took you know, getting a certain type of player into the program. I don't know if it took some of the tragedies that befell the program. I don't know if it took some wins, whatever the case was. I don't know. Maybe it took some losses. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, but, but that guy who is maybe best known as somebody who is way more likely to reply to a text message with a GIF than with actual words. Um, you know, the guy that is best known for fist bumping and jumping up and down the sidelines uh, that gif of him nearly knocking over Mike Phipps during the Syracuse game that apparently now means that the Hoyas have picked up another commitment uh, is emblematic of who Kevin Warren was when he got the job, right? Like that was the Maryland mosh pit on that 2012 yeah. NCAA runner-up team. And I think that that like, he's one of the funniest guys in the sport. I think that has level set throughout the program. Yeah. Very cool. Um, Hey, tell me about the, um, the Loyola Villanova matchup that had to have been interesting to watch. And I yeah. think watching practices is great, but I, I feel like you probably get more out of watching a game as far as being able to judge a team. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, potentially, um, I mean, certainly in terms of trying to put them in a hierarchy, uh, so it was an interesting game in the sense that, they reset the score at every quarter and the first third and fourth quarters were tied either two, two or three, three Loyola won the second quarter, either eight, one or eight, two. I can't remember whether Villanova got a late goal. Wow. Yeah. They exploded in the second quarter offensively. And so, you know, the final was roughly 13, six, 14, seven, somewhere in that, excuse me, in that range. And, uh, and, I, the, you can't help but have the overriding takeaway from the, really the day be 
Loyola's ball movement was exceptional. Um, you know, to the theme of not knowing whether a guy is back or not. I knew Aiden Olmstead and Kevin Lindley were back, but I'm not sure that everybody knew that. And they're back. And Aiden Olmstead was being deployed at the top of the box the way that we saw him at the end of last season when Loyola went on their five-game win streak. And, you know, he was so dangerous um, and so productive in a couple of those games. Uh, you know, the Denver playoff game, chief among them. And, uh, you know, Kevin Lindley showed what he has shown for the last three years, which is, yeah, he'll always be a catch and shoot finisher, but every fifth time he touches the ball, he's going to have this real quick two or three step dodge and he's going to get his hands free and he's going to score. So you got to respect or play him a little bit differently. Uh, So last year, that third attack spot was, either Evan James or Joey Kamish, depending on their health, because both guys dealt with injuries. Mm -hmm. Joey Kamish is not back from what I believe was an ACL tear uh, in the spring. So he won't be back this fall. Evan James is back. I think he had a hand, like a, like a hand or a finger or a thumb. And, uh, and he's playing midfield. Uh, Davis Lindsay, who missed, I believe missed the whole year last year as a freshman due to injury uh north carolina native from the christ school but absolutely looks like somebody he he kind of i mean you know he he kind of has his josh zawada vibe in the sense you know also in north carolina native but zawada went to hill academy so you could have convinced a lot of people that he was canadian <laughs> and i would say that same is true for Lindsay as well um a lot of one-handed cradles uh you know i think the staff was working with him on not being as much of a black hole but in the in the settings that i saw he was productive in terms of beating his man and drawing a slide, getting the goal himself, scoring, whatever the case may be. Evan James is a midfielder, looked really good. Uh, you know, they have a, a number of other veteran contributors returning at the midfield as well. Their biggest area of need is going to be at the short stick D mini position. Uh, Peyton Rizanka comes back as uh, the, you know, the athlete and the guy who uh, has the most experience. But beyond that, they ran out Mitchell Kane a fair amount. Um, so I, I think that, you know, that's going to be a position that they're going to pay a lot of attention to, uh, right now they got a lot of depth at LSM. Uh, Ryan McNulty is back. He's one of the best in the game. Uh, their entire starting defense is back. Sam Schaefer was back in goal. Uh, so, you know, they're another team that I would put right there with Georgetown, right? Like, you know, I can imagine Loyola Bailey Savio is back at the faceoff X. I can imagine them being, you know, five, six or seven, uh, they're going to be really good. I felt like their defense needed a wake-up call, particularly because, and I'll get to Villanova in a second, but in Loyola's second game, which was against Delaware, I, I think Delaware won. Uh, Loyola played without a handful of starters. I think both teams subbed, but I think Loyola subbed earlier um, or you know had guys that didn't play at all. Uh, but I thought their defense, and, and this was with some of their starting personnel, including you know Cam Wires and, and uh, Kyle LeBlanc. I thought they just looked a step slow and, you know, I think that might have might have just been a reflection of the fact that Delaware was playing harder in that moment. Uh, I thought even against Villanova, Sam Schaefer bailed him out of a fair amount of goals. I thought he looked awesome, particularly down low. Um, you know, so talking a little bit more about Villanova, they are super young defensively. I think uh, if I had the numbers correct, which I kind of think I didn't, um, I think that they were playing one senior and then two sophomores. But the way I took the numbers down were two sophomores and a freshman. Um, you know, they return their goalie. Uh, actually, I wrote about this, but this is something that you'll appreciate because it's just kind of a quirk of the rules. So they went into a 10-man 
Uh, and I believe Will Vinton was, was the goalie at the time. And he was recovering to the goal. A loyal player took a shot. And he, I thought he just dove and reached out his stick. But apparently, it was just because of the angle. It was coming toward me. Um, apparently, he actually threw his stick, stopped the ball. Ball went away from his stick. So then he picked up a stick and just started playing again. And the play went on. But, of, but once, like, the flag down was ended, right, so whether Villanova came with the ball or whatever, he, it was playing without a stick, and it was an unsportsmanlike because uh, I believe it was a 60-second non-releasable. Um, have you ever seen that before? Yeah, you can't throw your stick. Okay, so, like, I mean, I've never seen it. I've seen it happen in, like, practices and stuff. I've never yeah. seen it happen in an officiated game. Yeah. Um, I thought that was I've interesting. I've seen someone chuck their stick up in the air, you know, I think, in like, in a high school game or something like that. Yeah. But, yeah. So knock a ball down that's going over your head. Yeah. It's a well, good, it's a good thing to do when you're, you know, when you only have one ball and you're out shooting with your buddies and someone whips it over your head and you knock that thing down. It's, yes. It's a big play. <laughs> uh, but you know, so, so defensively, I think they're going to be really young. Uh, they struggled facing off against Loyola, uh, which, you know, isn't necessarily a condemnation of their ability to face off. Um, and then offensively, I think they're a work in progress. Cause I do think that two thirds of their attack are transfers. Uh, so Luke Keating, who comes in from FNM, was playing at X. And then uh, J.P. Basile, who comes in from Duke, was playing on the righty wing. And then Patrick Daly, who was probably their best offensive player, I thought, in terms of his ability to create his own shot, uh, was playing on the lefty wing. Uh, Matt Campbell was probably, like, the leader uh, offensively. Tucker Goodell, a sophomore midi from North Carolina, um, was playing two ways and, and I thought it was really good. He, I think, I, th- I thought he did a really nice job. And then, uh, and then Brett Baskin, who's a grad transfer from Hopkins uh, did a nice job in an invert role, um, you know, which was a role that any Hopkins fan has seen him fill uh, over the course of the last few years during his time as a blue Jay. So, you know, I would say that, um, you know, de- de- definitely a step behind all the teams that we've talked about so far. Um, but I would also say that, that probably doesn't come as much of a surprise, you know, when you consider what they looked like in their first game last year, how much turnover they had, you know, how good Keegan Khan is and the expectation of what, you know, I think he will do at Maryland um, as well as, you know, some of the other guys like Luke, uh, Owen Pravilsky, uh, I believe transferred to Maryland as well. Some of the other guys that they lost, including Eric Overbay who graduated. So, you know, it'll, it'll be a building project for Nova, but, but yeah, I mean, Delaware, man, they, they played hard. They've got a lot of talent. JP Ward uh, was the attack, you know, ex-attackman who I thought played the best I've seen him play. Cam Echione, uh, you know, one of a set of twin middies from, uh, from Hill Academy. I thought was awesome. Um, Owen Grant uh, is, he was, he's been with Team Canada or he was with Team Canada for the fall classic. Um, yeah, I can't recall whether he's going to play on their sixth roster or not. Uh, but he's a junior defenseman. Um, he's awesome. They played four goalies. Uh, so I think that they're still trying to figure out what they've got there. Um, and they were good facing off. So Delaware is going to be really good. CAA is going to be tough. Um, Matt had good things to say after seeing Drexel and Towson this past weekend. So there's a lot of good teams in the CAA. Man, there's a lot of good teams everywhere. I mean, with, with, uh, all these fifth years and all, you know, all the Ivy leagues with, you know, the Ivy leagues have, three freshman classes basically yeah the 2019s the 2020s and the 21s are all have four years of eligibility and everyone's gonna be better um what are your plans terry for visiting some more uh some more practices as we sort of wind this this uh, podcast down 
So Harvard's going to be in Baltimore this coming weekend as they take on, uh, well, I actually don't even know who they play, but they're playing as part of the Hesron event at uh, the Colliery event at, uh, at Homewood, which I believe is bringing five teams uh, to campus. Uh, so I'm going to check out their practice on Saturday before, uh, before the game, or before their play day, rather. And then I'm hoping next week to get to uh, North Carolina. Schedule isn't aligning perfectly just yet. My, my goal would be to see Duke, North Carolina, and High Point, and potentially some of, those, some of their women's teams as well. Um, so trying to see how that comes together. And then I think that'll be it, because I think most teams are going to start winding it down. In terms of like who I would like to see uh, if they were going to keep going, you know, would be particularly interested in, in Cornell and Syracuse, particularly interested in uh, Ohio State and Penn State. So, you know, we'll see what we're going to be able to piecemeal together. But, you know, some of these are probably going to have to be podcasts on Inside the Cross's feed with the coaches to ask them how they felt like it unfolded. Yeah, awesome. Well, Terry, thanks for, uh, for sharing your uh, fall experience. That's awesome. I know you wrote a lot about it, but it's uh, always better to hear it straight from you, hear your perceptions and the little nuances. And, man, it's going to be so exciting to uh, – to get lacrosse season now that fall ball is almost over we're just gonna have three more ones to wait oh yeah jamie thanks for having me man all right take care Ty.